Well, I invite you to turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5. We're coming now to the end of the chapter to what is a climax to this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the section in which Jesus has been showing us what true righteousness is. Uh, the true righteousness that his people, that disciples of Christ, will be concerned with, will desire, and will indeed, in some measure, possess. Um, so we've been going through that for several weeks now, and uh, this section ends here today at the end of chapter 5, and we pick up a new section the beginning of chapter 6 that has more to do with how we then practice this true righteousness. So we're going to read beginning in verse 43 to the end of chapter 5. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So as we have seen a true righteousness, Jesus has been explaining to us, is so much more than uh, just a few external matters, a few external rules that we can just check off. And as he's been correcting some of the abuses of the Old Testament, we've seen that even the Old Testament laws that were dealing with external matters, or talking about external matters, were pointing to much more than that. They were not to be simply restricted to a few externals. So, for example... Uh, to not commit adultery was not simply meant to do the bare minimum of faithfulness in your marriage, but was pointing, ultimately, Jesus showed us to the sanctity of marriage and to purity and even our thoughts and so on. And now as this section reaches its climax, it comes really to a stunning conclusion, I think. Jesus teaches us here that true righteousness is, in fact, nothing less than God's own moral excellence. And this is what disciples, this is what you, if you are a disciple, if you are a disciple, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what you are called to reflect, the very moral excellence and perfection of God. R righteousness is not checking a few boxes of external behavior. It is the moral excellence of God himself. And this is what we are called to reflect. So as we consider the things Jesus has taught us already, about being patient, not being angry with people, purity in our hearts, as we seek to be pure in our hearts, truthful, honest people of integrity and so on, what we are really seeking to do in this is to be like God, at least in this way. We're seeking to be God-like, godly. That's where that, what that word means. We throw that word along, be godly as a godly person. That's what this is talking about, being like him in this manner, reflecting his holy character. Of course, when I say being like God, there are, we will never be totally and completely like God, right? We understand that he is other than his creation. 
This is not like the, the uh, Garden of Eden, which they're tempted to be like God in some perverse way. Rather, that's not what we're talking about, but this is a call to reflect the holiness, the perfection of God in some measure. For God is righteous. He is the definition of it. And so when we think about being righteous, when we think about righteousness, that's how we have to think of it as a reflection of God. His commands are a reflection of his holiness ultimately. And so it is this reality, obviously, that really um, exposes and puts a dagger in the logic of any sort of legalism. If anybody wants to take the Sermon on the Mount or any of God's commands in some legalistic fashion, I just have to do this and I do that, and then, boom, I'm declared righteous or I get to be uh, made holy if I just keep some of these external things. If our focus becomes external and outward, we completely miss this because righteousness is so much more than that. It's a reflection of God himself. And so this exposes the fraudulent teachings of the Pharisees, the plans of legalists, and so on. And we'll, we'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself now. So we're seeing here that Christ is revealing to us that disciples are to reflect God's own moral excellence. And he states that kind of broadly at the end when he speaks of being perfect as the Father is perfect. Um, but before that, he deals with something a little more specific when he talks about love. And so we are called here in verses 43 to 47 to reflect God's benevolent love. This is what disciples are to do. Reflect God's benevolent love. So in verse 43, we arrive at the final of the sixth antitheses we've been looking at in this chapter. That is these sections where Jesus says, you have heard this, but I am telling you that. Uh, this is the sixth and final one of these. And once again, Jesus deals with the Old Testament and how it was being understood and, and, and falsely understood and then falsely taught to others, this false understanding of it. So he's bringing a correction. So he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So this is what people were being taught. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Now, only the, the first half of that statement can be found explicitly and found taught and commanded in the Old Testament. So in verse 18 of Leviticus chapter 19, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so called to love your neighbor, the question then arises, who is my neighbor? Right? So if you remember what we just read in Luke chapter 10, when this man gets up to test Jesus, of course, he's not entirely honest. He seeks to justify himself in that passage. When he asks him what he must do, and Jesus tells him, keep, keep the commandments, points him to God's law, do this and live. His question then becomes, well, who is my neighbor? Right? Uh, he was affirming you shall love your neighbor as yourself as being an important command of God. But of course, the million dollar question is who indeed is my neighbor? So this was the question that arises from Leviticus 19, 18. No question we love our neighbor, but who is that? Well, Leviticus 19, 18, in that text, it clearly has in view their fellow Israelites. So again, the thinking is if, 
if this isn't referring to everybody, if we can narrow this down to a few folks, then perhaps we can indeed love our neighbor as ourselves. Maybe we have a shot at this. Who is my neighbor? Well, Leviticus 19.18 has in view fellow Israelites. It says, you shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So clearly it's talking about the covenant people of Israel. And so this is how it was taken. I am to love those who are in the Mosaic covenant with me, but I don't have to love the non-Israelites, those Gentiles. And in fact, it was taught that the Gentiles were to be despised. You were free, and in some cases even commanded, to in fact hate those other people. These are outside of God's covenant people. They hate and despise the Lord. They reject what could be made known to them plainly by creation. Therefore, you despise and hate those people. So we know that this was explicitly taught in some places. Uh, if you're familiar with the Qumran sect, from those are the people who... who uh, preserved the, the from who, for who made the Dead Sea Scrolls. You're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they, they taught this explicitly, this obligation to hate these other people. But this is also behind, uh, it's implicit in other places in the New Testament, including, I think, right here. But also, if you think about the great difficulty that there was in the New Testament church, when the Gentiles start coming into the church, when Gentiles start getting saved, they're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're repenting of their sin, and still there's this animosity between the two sides. The Jews are not so sure that they can just come in like this in this way and we just accept them. There's all these other things that need to happen. There was an animosity underwriting this. And I think we see this kind of animosity towards others really in the background of, of many stories and many things in the New Testament, including the story of the Good Samaritan. So they could hate those outside the covenant. Also, I think we see this being applied to covenant breakers. The worst of the covenant breakers within Israel, those who would be under the category of sinners, right? You don't eat with them. Jesus was despised because he ate with sinners. You don't eat with them. They're to be despised. Sinners, people like the tax collectors, and so on. But nowhere in the Old Testament is there a command to hate your enemy. In fact, we find in the Old Testament seeds of the parable of the Good Samaritan. For example, in Exodus 23, verse 4, it says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Well, if you're supposed to hate your neighbor, wouldn't you just laugh or slaughter the ox or something like that? Well, by doing what Exodus 23, 4 says, you would be showing kindness to your enemy by bringing him the ox back. It's not simply about the ox and you know doing this for the ox's sake so it lives. It's about doing good, showing mercy, kindness, compassion to even your enemy. Of course, they were called to love the foreigner who sojourned in their midst as well. This is not just, there was not this just go ahead and hate everybody who doesn't see things exactly as you do. You're those Gentiles, etc., that, that was never instructed and taught. And so we find that the category of neighbor, whom they were called to love, was never quite so narrow. It was not so neat and tidy, which is what I think Jesus is making very crystal clear in the story of the Good Samaritan. 
Now, with that being said, there are places in the Old Testament where hatred and anger at enemies is expressed and it's nowhere condemned and at times even seems to be a good thing. And this quite possibly may be where this hating your enemy was taken from. Why they thought this was acceptable. And of course, there are some complicated matters to think through and work out. We think, for example, of the imprecatory Psalms in which curses are pronounced upon God's enemies. And we've talked about these Psalms a number of times. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this now. There are other places where we've talked about that. For example, just one example, if, if you're not satisfied with the brief time we spend now, uh, when we dealt with Psalm 109, and I preached that. It is available online. Talked a little more about it then. Uh, you can look into that more if you so desire. But again, there are some key differences even between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, the nation of Israel was indeed a nation. They had a king. In the imprecatory psalms, they're typically taken from the perspective of the king of Israel, especially and in particular, David, King David. David, of course, is the appointed king, God's appointed king over God's chosen people. And these imprecatory psalms, they dealt with the nation's enemies, with God's enemies, not simply David's, not simply his own personal enemies. David was not writing simply about personal rivalries. It was very personal at times. Don't, don't get me wrong. He had close friends turn their back upon him. Psalm 109 is one of the places he expresses that. But David was not a private citizen. He was not writing and functioning as a private citizen who was simply angry you know, at somebody who had made a passing insult toward him. David, as we know, serves as a type of Christ, pointing ahead to the greater king, the greater son of David who would come. And so these psalms also remind us that this greater son of David, namely Jesus Christ, will put all enemies under his feet, that he will indeed bring to an end all of God's enemies one day, justly and rightly. And we are those, as we are instructed very Clearly and plainly in the New Testament, we do not take vengeance into our own hands, but we leave that to the Lord. And we are assured and reminded in the Psalms, in just one place of the Scriptures, but all throughout Scriptures, but in the Psalms, including the imprecatory Psalms, that justice matters, justice will be upheld, and it is the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring about that justice, ultimately. Moreover, the justice we see, we see served in the Old Testament, whether it's by David or other kings of Israel or by the armies of Israel. And again, that is one of the differences. There were times they were called, the nation was called, to be the agent, the instrument of God's justice and judgment upon even uh, nations surrounding them. Clearly that is the case when they enter into the land of Canaan. God's patience for many, many years with the Amorites and the others that lived there had run out and God said it was time for judgment and it was the nation of Israel through the leading of Joshua that was to be the sword of God's judgment in that case. 
But none of this was incompatible with a love for an enemy. We'll talk more about how that could be later, but we see this even in the life of David. David prayed imprecatory psalms, and he even prayed an imprecatory psalm against Saul in Psalm 18. You remember Saul sought David's life terribly unjustly, even after the Lord himself through Samuel had appointed David as the rightful king. And Saul continues to uh, chase David. He's living in the caves. He's wandering. He's off in the wilderness, running and hiding. He prays this imprecatory psalm against his enemy, against Saul. And yet we also find David showing him incredible mercy on multiple occasions, do we not? He refused to lift his hand, his own hand, against Saul. So he knew how to show tremendous mercy, even to Saul. And even in some of these imprecatory psalms, like Psalm 109, we find that David had shown love to these people and kindness. And this was being turned back on him with treachery and with evil and with even murderous hate. So this was not some petty use of eye for an eye in the imprecatory psalms. We talked about that last week. So the Old Testament was not to be taken as condoning this broad hate your enemies approach that would lead to you know, demanding eye for an eye in everything and refusing to help anyone who would be considered perhaps an enemy. And so Jesus corrects this approach beginning in verse 44, but I first want to jump to verse 46. In verse 46, Jesus reveals that this love your neighbor and hate your enemy approach, this view, really was nothing more than the common way of the world. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So he exposes here that there's absolutely nothing unique about their understanding and practice of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. That's just the way everybody does it. That's what he's saying. You want to call this righteousness? This is no different than anyone else. Consider the people you despise. These tax collectors and these Gentiles, they practice the exact same thing that you do. If all you do is love and greet those closest to you, you're no better than the pagan Gentile nations. In what way, he's asking, in what way have you gone beyond them? What unique, special thing is there to this? And so these are devastating words, a crushing criticism. And so this, this cannot be the way of true righteousness. And so the corruption of the Old Testament left little to distinguish biblical love from worldly love. So again, love is not just a New Testament thing. Jesus is making this clear here. They got this wrong from day one, from a wrong reading of the Old Testament. And so this, the positive formulation of love then comes in verse 44. If you go back to 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus shows that a person who truly loves others takes love beyond just loving those who are closest to you or loving those who love you. He says, pray even for those who persecute you. 
And he tells us that this attitude and this kind of love is a reflection of God's own love for mankind. So again, this is a reflection of God's own love. Verse 45. So he has said, I love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So when he says here, love your enemies so that you may be sons, he is not saying that this is how one becomes a son. Rather, Jesus showing, is showing us here that loving enemies is a way that we behave as the true sons of our Father. It is one of the ways that we express our sonship, that we have indeed been adopted by God graciously into his family, into his kingdom. He gives the reason for this statement. How is it that this reflects God's love? For he, the Father, makes his son, notice that, it's his son. He makes this. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust, or on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God does have a special and unique love that he pours out upon the church, upon his elect, a redeeming love, special, unique for his church. But it is also true that God shows what we might call a common love toward all of his creatures. His son and his reign falls and shines upon all mankind. It provides for all of humanity. Even those who revile him, even those who blaspheme his name, even those who deny him, who suppress the truth about him in unrighteousness. The sun still shines, crops still grow, mankind eats food. This is often referred to as common grace. It is not a saving grace, but it is nevertheless a gracious kindness that God shows toward mankind, something that is entirely unearned, is something entirely undeserved by humanity. And so it is rightly presented to us here as an example, as a demonstration of loving an enemy. God doesn't just send his son for his people, or the rain to to fall upon your yard, but it falls also upon your neighbor's yard and upon the fields all around us. This is so because of God's mercy and kindness. Just consider that for a moment. Consider the sinfulness of the world, the blaspheming that goes on, the onslaught against his glory, the fact that the vast majority of people all around you would deny that it is indeed his son in the first place. And yet, the earth continues to turn. God has not simply wiped us all out. We have food, we experience good things, beautiful things even. True righteousness reflects this benevolent love of God. And it is not a love that is restricted simply to a select few, but it extends even to enemies. 
This is what we're called to imitate. Now, as we think about how to do this, what this looks like, I just want to give a few suggestions. I think loving our enemies is not always an easy concept, not just to do, but to just get our heads around what that looks like. And I want to give a few suggestions as we think through this and how to apply this and what this would look like. First, it's important that we reject sentimental and emotional definitions of love. This is, this is how most people think of love. It's a, some sort of feeling. But that's not what God's common grace is, is it? The love of the Father that is pointed to here for his enemies is a very practical sort of love, a very practical sort of mercy, a provision for those who would revile him. Not unlike the love we find in the Good Samaritan who provided for this enemy of his that was dying in a very practical way. It was a demonstration of love. So this is not telling us, this is not telling you that you need to have flowery feelings about wicked people. That's not what it means to love your neighbor, to feel really great about them and what they're doing. I don't think this means that we're to give free reign to vengeful thoughts either. I think we've covered that already in the Sermon on the Mount, including last week. But it doesn't mean we're to have, necess- we're to have flowery, emotional feelings of love. That's not what this is telling us to do. Second, similarly, we need to reject the world's practice of love. So just as in days of old, our world despises those who disagree with them. Perhaps more than ever right now, we see this. For all of our talk of diversity, all of our talk of inclusion and coexisting and whatever else, the reality is the moment you transgress, whatever today's standard happens to be, you're cut off. You're despised. You're anathema. Canceled would be probably one of the common words today for this. We're all about love and inclusion. Until you disagree, then you're out. You're silenced. Away with you. This is precisely the kind of love that Christ refutes. Thirdly, it's also important here that we acknowledge that there are different types of love. Frankly, it's the only way I can think to make any sense of this command to love your enemy. The common love that God has for the world is distinct. It is not this, is distinct from the love that he has for his redeemed people. It is not the exact same love. The church will never fall under God's wrathful judgment, will never perish. We will be refined. We will be disciplined by God. We understand that. The Bible teaches that. But we will never be finally condemned by God. Whereas we know those who persist in their wickedness, that will be their end. Judgment and hell will be their final end. So there is distinction. And yet there's still a way in which God loves all mankind. That's what Jesus is telling us here. And so the reality is the way that you are going to love an enemy, it will look different from the way you will love 
your church family, the way you will love your own family, your children, there is going to be distinction. You will not trust that enemy in the same way that you would trust your spouse or church family, etc. There's going to be distinction. And then fourthly, I would just encourage to seek balance. As we think about seeking to be like God and, and mimic his perfection and holiness, we need to balance things. So truth and justice are important. Hating evil is important. But likewise, so is compassion for the lost. Humility. Love of gospel grace. And so on. So be careful to not just love justice and truth in such a way that you have no compassion left. That you really would just rather watch the world burn than see people turn to Christ. And yet, of course, we know that when a person repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, justice justice is served, is it not? Right? The Lord Jesus has satisfied God's wrath for the sins of those people. Right? We have a, a, an example of this. A whole book of the Bible is written to teach us about this and about this danger. Jonah, a prophet of God who is furious with God that he's going to show grace to the Ninevites. They don't deserve it. And surely they did not. They were evil, wicked people. He did not want to preach to them because he knew God was merciful. He didn't want God to show mercy to them. He wanted them to burn. He even set up after preaching to them, finally, what God wanted him to preach. He set up and looked out, maybe they'll still burn yet. And they did not. And the book ends with Jonah upset. And God revealing his compassion, even for these Gentile sinners. And so we need to be wary of our flesh when we desire justice in the world. Be wary of our anger. It doesn't lead us to that place where we'd rather just watch it all burn than see people turn to Christ and give him glory. So we need balance there. We need balance the other way. To not love in such a way that truth is tossed out. Right? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love rejoices in the truth. They're not incompatible. Again, people often start with a bad understanding of love, sort of a sentimental understanding, an emotional sort of feeling of love, and we're to just love every, even enemies, everybody, and so we don't want to ever get in any sort of combative situation or co- confrontation is bad because we... And that's wrong. That's not what this is teaching. Fifthly, in terms of thinking of how to apply this, how do we do this? Pray for your enemies. This is commanded of us here. And it's a very practical and important way for you and I to love our enemies. Jesus himself did this. He prayed for those that were nailing him to the cross. Which would seem, and it would seem to indicate as they were nailing him to the cross. He's not spewing just curses upon them. But what does he pray? That the Father would forgive them. They're ignorant. They don't know. They really don't grasp what they're doing. Yes, this is wicked and evil. 
but he prays for them. Stephen, Stephen likewise, prays for those murderous men as they are pelting him with stones, the stones that would take his life. And what does he pray? Again, that God would forgive these persecutors, that he would forgive these murderers. Praying for such people will undoubtedly also serve our own good in rightly orienting our hearts towards people. So I think the love that God is, Jesus is pointing us toward here is a love that would be acknowledging there are enemies, there are people out to get us, there are people who despise the Lord and hate the Lord and promote all that is evil. And yet at the same time, being prepared that as we have opportunity to do good to those people, to help them, to serve them, and to show them love. And of course, we would add to that, praying for them and pointing them to God's grace in Christ for the worst of sinners. Well, if loving and praying for those who hate you and oppose you isn't hard enough, we come to the climax of the sermon or at least of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, where all that Jesus has been saying about righteousness now gets summarized. He says in verse 48, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So again, Christ here shows that disciples are to reflect God's moral excellence in all things. He has gone through some specifics. We have just seen him talk about this loving your enemy, And now he broadens this right out and says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In the ESV, the sentence is kept in the same paragraph as verses 43 to 47. But it's best to view this as summarizing and concluding all that Jesus has said, going back really to verse 17. Again, true righteousness is nothing less than the moral excellence of God himself. Our love is to be a God-like love and our actions, our minds, our attitudes in all things and in every way are to reflect God's moral perfection. That's what this is getting at. It's as if he's saying, in other words, in other words, what I'm saying here, what I'm getting at, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So, so far, from lessening the law of God and its demands. Remember, he said, I did not come to throw this all out. So far from lessening it, Jesus gives it to us straight, pure. God's law, God's standard is perfection. The holy perfection of God himself. This is similar, even the way this is phrased here, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, to Leviticus 11.45, where the Lord tells Israel, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. It's the same idea. God's holy perfection. And so here again is the fatal flaw of the Pharisees and the fatal flaw of untold, I don't know, millions of people, billions, I don't know, ever since. They have too low of a view of God and his law and therefore a very inadequate and low view and and, and wrong view of righteousness. 
they think themselves righteous because they think God's demands are really not all that intrusive. They're really not all that high. Regardless of whatever lip service they might say of God's, towards God's holiness, ultimately they don't have a high enough view of it. Because God's righteous standard is nothing less than absolute perfection, his own moral perfection, I mean, how insane is it or how ignorant is it to think that we can just create a list of a few things, a few external matters, perform some of those external works, and then just call ourselves righteous and be on our merry way. We're good to go. Really? Have you reached God's moral perfection? Because that's what's required. Of course, people object. Wow. God would never really demand that of people. That's impossible. Well, yes, actually, he does demand that of people. Jesus himself says it right here. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. Behold, in the words of Christ here, see the glory, the majesty, the righteousness, the holiness of Almighty God. He is perfect And his demands are perfect. Perfection. Jesus lessens nothing here, but he upholds the moral law of God in all of its majesty, in all of its perfection, in all that it demands of humanity. God does not change, which is underneath this whole, I'm not here to lessen anything or to do away with what has come, but to fulfill the law and to give true instruction. God does not change. His perfection cannot ever lessen. His standard cannot lessen. He can't drop the requirements into heaven. Well, look, shoot, nobody does this, so I'll just drop the bar a little bit. He can't do that. He does not do that. It would be a violation of his own being, of his own holiness. He cannot look the other way, or he would not be just and good and perfect and unchanging. This all exposes the folly of any form of legalism, including the legalism that looks at the Sermon on the Mount and tries to just say, well, if we just do this in society or Jesus is trying to give us the the pathway to, to becoming a citizen of God's kingdom, it just cannot be. Now, when you and I read this, You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There ought to be something of a shiver that runs down your spine. A recognition that this is not you, that you have not done this, that you have not been perfect. Never have you been perfect. You've never accomplished this. You didn't early on in your life when you first became a believer and you were so filled with zeal You did not accomplish this even this morning. Nor are any of us accomplishing this now, in this moment. There ought to come here with this a recognition that if that is the standard to which God looks and holds his people, that you're undone. As with Isaiah, when Isaiah saw the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6, a vision of the holiness of God, and he declared that he was undone. That is how you and I ought to understand this here when the demand is perfection woe is me then woe is me if that's what's demanded 
For Isaiah, it was enough that he was of unclean lips. Just his words have left him undone. Never mind all the other things he'd done. Just his words would ruin him before this holy God. And of course, as with Isaiah, your need, our need, is for God to provide atonement for your sins. For your lawless ways. And indeed, this is what Christ came to do. To make atonement. Dying for the sins of his people, taking their guilt upon himself. And satisfying God's just wrath for all of the ways you fall short of perfection. Of God's moral excellence. But again, Jesus did not come just to set us back to even. He didn't just come to say, well, there, your debt is gone now, but don't blow it again. or We're going to have to do this all over again. No, he also took up the obligation of his people to be perfect. By being perfect in your stead, if you believe in Christ. Earning righteousness that is credited to your account upon faith in the Lord Jesus. And it is this righteousness alone that will justify you before God since you are fallen and you have fallen short of God's glory. What is God's, shall fall short of his glory, fall short of his moral perfection. You're not like him. That is the problem. And this is why we need this righteousness of Christ credited to our accounts. Because we lack that perfect righteousness that is demanded of us. And so the good news is it is yours by faith, not by works, not by legally living up to the standard, but by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has secured that righteousness for all who are in him. This is the gift of God's grace that is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. To the glory of God alone, clearly, because we've got nothing of our own to glory in. This is your need. If you have not, God calls you to confess your sinfulness to him, to repent of it, to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to have your sins forgiven, to receive that righteousness of Christ credited to your account. And yet, as we've said many times, and as we looked at back when we started this section in verses 17 to 20, Jesus' gift of salvation, the blessings that come from being united to him by faith, they do not just include imputation by his, uh, the imputation of his righteousness to your account, being justified by that, does not just include having your sins forgiven, only to then continue in a life of sin. Jesus came to do those things, to impute his righteousness to you, to earn that righteousness, to forgive your sins, satisfy God's wrath against you for your sins. But he also came to make his people holy, to sanctify those who he, whom he justifies. He did not just come to change your status before God, that you would be justified and declared righteous, but he came also to change you. And this sanctification 
that begins when a person believes in the Lord Jesus and continues throughout your days. It is nothing less than being made perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You are not there yet. We are not there yet. But because of God's commitment to his people and his promise to keep his word, we're on our way. And it is this process of sanctification that makes disciples stand apart from the world, which is what Jesus has been indicating in this Sermon on the Mount. You think of even back to the Beatitudes. These are characteristics of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been born again, made new, who are in the kingdom. I just want to briefly look at a couple of texts. I'll just read them quickly for you to see that this sanctification is being made into the perfect righteousness of God. Philippians 3.12, Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, Christ has made me his own. He's bringing me towards that end, which is perfection. And so I'm stri- striving towards that even now. Hebrews ten twelve. God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Discipline is part of that process by which God is making us to share in His holiness, as it says in Hebrews, which is also described as the fruit of righteousness. The righteousness Jesus has been describing to us, the righteousness which we're seeking for, hungering and thirsting for, is God's holiness. In Ephesians 4.24, Paul speaks of our new selves being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, this is what it is that Jesus is elaborating on here in in Matthew chapter 5. And so again, Jesus is showing us that true righteousness contrasts from what the scribes and Pharisees taught Theirs was woefully and severely and damningly lacking. Jesus reveals to us that true righteousness, the righteousness that his people hunger and thirst for, is nothing less than the perfect moral excellence of God himself. And so just in bringing this to a close... Again, I plead with you to rest your hope of glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. In what he has accomplished in his work. And rejoice in the moral perfection and the moral excellence of God himself. This is good. Be reminded the law is good because it is a reflection of God's own righteousness. So when we hear of these high demands and the perfection of God's moral excellence and we think, oh, I fall so short, 
Rest in what Christ has accomplished for sinners. Believe that. And then be reminded of how good God is. That his standard is what is righteous and good. Be reminded that he alone is truly holy, but that in his grace and as a gift of the gracious salvation he has given you is he is making you to share in that holiness and that he will complete what he begins in his people. It seems impossible at times because of how brutally we fall short and how consistently we're made to be aware of that. But this is precisely what God has guaranteed for those who believe in his son. He completes the work he starts. And so believe that. Rejoice in that. I can't hardly see how that's going to be or what that will be like when we reach the end. When Christ returns, we're raised with imperishable bodies. We enter the new heavens and new earth with the Lord's redeemed people and there's nothing that defiles it. it. We can't fully grasp it, but that's where the Lord is taking you. Rejoice in that. See the goodness of pursuing all that is in keeping with that, even now. Put off false humility. Well, yeah, I don't really know if that could be for me. Do you believe in Christ? Is he your hope? If you answer yes, then that is true for you. Lift your head. Rejoice in these things. It's not on your shoulders to get there. And so let us continue along with God's people throughout, who have lived before us and who are throughout the world now, let us continue to press on towards that goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us strive for holiness. Let us strive to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we are reminded again of your excellence and your perfection. I pray that this would delight our hearts to know that our God is holy and perfect and never changing. I pray that would delight us, Father, that we would have confidence in Christ and what you have done through your Son, that we would take you at your word and trust that all who are in him are forgiven now and that we are being sanctified and that you will not let us go. We believe what your son has declared to us that nobody can snatch us out of his hand, that we are sealed in your hand, father, and in the son's hand. We thank you for your spirit who works in us who does sanctify us, who illuminates our understanding. Father, we pray you would pour out in increasing measure that work, that you would speed the work of holiness in our hearts. Father, we do desire that.
We confess that we so often get distracted and we desire other things more. But we thank you for your word that reminds us that there's nothing more significant and greater than you and for us to be like you and to know you. Father, give us patience with each other and with one another as we fall short of your glory. I pray that that would drive us to long for the return of the Lord Jesus and the day when all of this battling will be done and perfection will be attained. Father, I pray that you would help us as we are called here to reflect your moral excellence in in everything. Help us with this. Give us wisdom as we think about loving enemies. Father, we know so many wander as your enemies. So many put forth that which is clearly wicked and evil, calling it good, and it's grievous to our souls. And we confess that we don't always get it right. We get to hate people at times, and, and we're clearly we know this is wrong. Help us to know how to affirm what is true about evil people, and yet also to love them, to know how to love our enemies to be prepared to show kindness and mercy to those in need and not distinguish. Father, we truly need your help in these things. So again, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are with us even now. We thank you your spirit is with us to help us as our helper in all of these things. Father, as we continue through this day, I pray that you would bless us. I pray that you would turn our thoughts to you, that you'd help us to be quick to pray. And that as we continue on through our week, you would remind us of your holiness and greatness and of our salvation that you have graciously poured out and given to us through your Son and by the work of your Spirit. So we commit all of these things to you in prayer. We acknowledge your goodness to answer as you see fit and to do all that is right in your eyes. We thank you for your many mercies that we experience daily in ways we don't even know. Even now as we breathe what is your air, we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.